You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dolores McElroy in the Department of Film and Media Studies. That's correct. Welcome. Film and Media. Film and Media. Film and Media. Can you start by telling us what that department is and what they do up there? Uh, yeah. Um, film and Media encompasses um, a wide range of historical and and theoretical studies of film <laughs> and uh, the moving image um, in many in its many different guises. And we added the media recently um, for many reasons. One of them was so that we could encompass theoretical approaches to new media. So all and everything that means. <laughs> it's really a vast new discipline in and of itself, but we're we are all one for the moment. Okay. And so should I start by asking you are you a film critic? Um, <laughs> nope, I'm not a film critic. <laughs> um, I've been a film critic like in, in life before. Uh, that's definitely one kind of job. But nope, this is not about seeing a film and talking about whether or not it's good or bad. We do talk about films and try to understand them in many different ways. You know, one can go about this sort of like sociologically or historically or from many, many different theoretical angles. So um, we're really about understanding film historically and theoretically. And so not just understanding like what happens in a film and what the plot was, but how maybe this interacts with society and how people interpret that. Exactly. Um, yeah, a lot of our work is focused on analyzing just the different kinds of, of meanings that that film generates. Um, so a film from, say, 1962 could look at it a lot of different ways. Um, it obviously meant, uh, it probably meant a lot of things in 1962. Maybe it's making um, reference to references to sort of important trends, uh, maybe uh, a war or important sociological issues of the day. And, you know, it resonated maybe on that level, among many other levels in its day. Now, viewing this film in 1962 from a standpoint in 2014, it might have different resonances because history has turned out a certain way. Maybe this film has influenced many other films that have come after. Maybe we know things that have happened to the actors in the film and that inflects our reading. And one can also look at films sort of structurally. And it's there are that's a whole other kind of can of worms. <laughs> but basically, um, we look at reading all the meanings, getting all the different types of meanings that you can out of films. So in your 1962 example, is it possible to know what people thought when they saw the film in 1962? Or are you just, no. how are you building that? That's a really good question. We kind of cheat. I mean, frankly, you kind of have to cheat. So no, you can never, um, or at least I tell this to my students, right? You can never exactly ascribe intention to a viewer or even a filmmaker. Even if that filmmaker wrote something saying, I meant to do this in my film. Like artists lie. They lie and they often don't really know what they're doing. But they do things anyways. So it's our job to sort of interpret as best we can and toward whatever end we can the sort of um, signs they leave us. So so I guess the premise of what we do is that everything means something, even if things are accidental in a work of art. I mean, that's completely beside the point. The point is that everything has some sort of resonance when we take it in. And so we try to best describe, like, what are those resonances? How is this acting on us? And, of course, everyone has a slightly different take. And, you know, we will never all experience a film in the same way, even though a film is a mechanically reproduced work of art. And, you know, presumably there can be 10,000 copies that are, you know, exactly the same. And I would put that in quotation marks mm -hmm. of the same film. Um, we will each experience it differently. But we still have to try to 
find some common ground to talk about what what that film going experience means. So why would you put that in quotation marks? Um, Because there are even within copies, particularly in 35 millimeter, but this is true of the digital as well. Actually, each copy does have its own unique chemical makeup, um, maybe its own unique scratches, its own unique way of aging. And people have done actually some like beautiful um, works of art with you know aging nitrate and and things. Uh, and nitrate is um it's a ver- it's an older film stock; it's no longer used. But uh, things decompose in unique and and special ways. And so um, each each copy of fil- of a film is not exactly the same. And there's something kind of beautiful in that, you know, no matter how much we try to mechanically reproduce art, it seems to struggle against that (laughs) in its way, thanks to all the elements, organic and, you know, otherwise that compose it. So, And and I know that I... I personally have a pretty big VHS collection, and one of the things that I like is is some of those films that have degraded and just the different different sort of textures you can see on the screen because of that degradation. I think it adds something unique to the VHS. Absolutely, yeah. I would completely agree. Some of my favorite films um, I've only seen on VHS, or at least until very recently. And you know, then I'll see them on DVD, and I'll be a little bit disappointed because there are some, especially old black and white films that were kind of poorly transferred to VHS. They take on this amazing, like, shadowy aura and everything's so mysterious um and then you see them like crystal clear on dvd and you're like oh it's not as atmospheric anymore (laughs) yeah so did you just have an epically large movie collection growing up is that what got you into this yeah uh not just movies i was attached to certain actresses from pretty early on when i was a little kid my first well my favorite films were judy garland films um i love the wizard of oz and meet me in st louis but i was very aware of like judy garland as an entity outside the films so yeah so judy was one of them and then when i was 11 i got like truly obsessed with vivian lee the actress who plays scarlett o'hara in gone with the wind she's also famous for playing blanche dubois in the 1951 version of a streetcar named desire and i bought all her films and my sort of vivian lee obsession i read every single book about her as well and this led me to other films and actors and actresses, but really mostly actresses. And I would just get on a sort of like star binge and I would collect everything that they'd ever done. And, you know, just one thing leads to another. And yeah, so I have a, I have a pretty big movie collection. <laughs> nice. So, yeah. And you started out, we were chatting, you said you started out looking at campy films in your undergrad. Yeah, my scholarly pursuits <laughs> began with um, trying to define the sensibility of camp, which um, is a notoriously tricky thing to define. And most people have sort of given up. Susan Sontag probably uh, offered the most comprehensive attempt. <laughs> but um, in her famous essay, Notes on Camp, uh, which is available in her volume Against Interpretation. But yeah, it's camp is one of those things where it's kind of like, you know, it when you see it. And I really wanted to define it a little bit better. Camp can be, and and I'm talking here, of course, about, you know, we often say a movie is campy or, you know, yeah, even a person is campy. And by that, we mean there's a sort of um, pleasure in something being so bad it's good or maybe so over the top or out of place that it's enjoyable. And the sort of joy lies in, in being the, that audience member, that person with the discerning taste and the, you know, the the special eye who can see the camp in something that maybe someone else would just see as bad. So I can go on and on about this. Do you want me to? Or <laughs> Well, I no, go as long as you like. Yeah, no, uh, d- did you come up 
I mean, that's a great definition of it. So, so I the, failed. Is the failed. I failed definitely is the point of that. Yeah, it was my 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 thesis in my undergrad took the form of a Socratic dialogue with Tallulah Bankhead, who's um, an actress who is famous from like the 30s to the 60s. She she had this very low voice and she called everyone darling. Um, she's famous as the Black Widow in the Batman series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so Tallulah was this sort of person I was having this um, dialogue with about what it meant to be camp, you know, what camp was and how how we might talk about it. And was it um, sort of the big question? One of the big questions is, is this politically progressive? This is not a question I would care to ask today, but it was a question I cared about then. So I wanted to know um, camp is very tied to homosexual taste, urban homosexual taste. It's an it's an in crowd thing. And you knew and it, it it's very much, I think, about you know, the sort of what mainstream culture has discarded or or deemed old fashioned or over the top or whatever, whatever it has no use for. Um, I feel like camp takes up and it claims it as its own and then says, you know, we we can see how fabulous this is. And you poor people in the Middle West, you know, eating your life cereal and reading <clears throat> Reader's Digest, you you can never see how fabulous this all is. So, I mean, there's a bit of an edge, but it is, it's the edge, it, it's a subculture sort of needing something to to be proud of, to be um, needing to be the arbiter of some value, because obviously this is a very disenfranchised minority. This is very much a pre-Stonewall culture, so Stonewall being a reference to the Stonewall riots in 1969, the real beginnings of sort of what was known then as, you know, gay liberation. Um, this is a very pre-Stonewall culture, so it's all about it's all about people who were disempowered, you know, finding some way to be better at something than everyone else in a way, to be more discerning, um, to claim themselves as, as arbiters of, of taste. So I might be a little biased, but I guess when I think of camp, I, I generally think of like the 80s and 90s. But clearly you have an interest in the first half of the 20th century. I mean, with Judy Garland and these and these other people you've mentioned, is there a particular reason you're focused in that time period? Yeah, I really think camp kind of doesn't work anymore. I think it's over. I think it was a pre-liberation sensibility. I, we often, it's this is a really, it's an interesting discussion to have because I think in a way, aspects of camp have just made it into mainstream taste like in our for you know I, I guess our generation or people maybe who grew up in the 90s and the 2000s we we look at a lot of things ironically and say it's awesome you know it might be like an ugly old star wars lunchbox and we're like that's so cool or you know just like your your mom's ugliest t-shirt with like a coyote on it or something like th- this reappropriation of what you know what at one time was thought to be very uncool is very much a part of our culture but this is kind of a first you know like um other generations uh, really I would say before the like late 60s, early 70s, this was not something, this was not like a common practice, but now it is. So I, I really think camp is over and especially that that sort of discerning taste and sort of learning what's camp and what's not and being in on the joke. And this is very much like coded in performances, I think. Like Judy Garland is always the example that comes to mind for me. A lot of her performances in films that were very pitched toward a straight ahead wide general audience, 
she will have little sophisticated ticks and sort of winks and nods and even a couple words here and there thrown in to appeal to a specifically gay audience um, who were who were picking this up. So this is not something maybe I'm I'm missing it. I could be out, you know, outside of a subculture who could, maybe maybe other people are giving out these signals in mainstream culture that I'm not understanding. And, you know, maybe there are things that could be understood similarly. But I really think camp in particular is kind of dead. Is that why you moved to Divas? You were just like, this is dead. I need a new topic. <laughs> I, huh. No, because I love a lost cause. So that wouldn't be the reason. <laughs> yeah, I just, it was so slippery. And it's also like, I feel like I was really the only one who cared. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you're right. In a way, I guess it it is like it's dead. Who cares? You know, it was worth understanding for me personally, but like I'm not sure the world needed to know. <laughs> so, But people like Judy Garland, you can talk about with camp and then you can talk about with your current work. Yeah. So there's definitely a theme that's still there for you. Definitely. But So my current project is trying to define diva and sort of looking at the um, evolution of that cultural type and its roots going back, I mean, you know, 2000 years and more. I think I mean diva is very much still with us. It, for one thing it gets it gets thrown around around a lot. We talk about, you know, diva in terms of like VH1 Divas Live, it's an entertainment term, like a category for a very sort of powerful female singer. But we often use diva pejoratively as a term for a woman of power and influence who is often very decisive and perceived as bitchy. Sometimes you'll hear diva or the term prima, prima donna, which is a synonym, used to describe a man not often but that I don't think I mean that has its roots in sort of like discourse around Paris opera performers and you know the early 19th century and I think that's just we can chalk that one up to misogyny and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deal like too too deeply with the meaning of diva as bitchy but yeah I think diva is here diva is a cultural phenomenon that's like here to stay and it, it helps us work through a lot of things so I, I really see diva as a specific thing that can be traced. There are like currents going through it concerning suffering in particular and this sort of like access to something sacred. So when you say sacred, do you mean specifically religious or? I actually do. And it's super tricky. I don't mean any particular religion, but diva in like the Latin root or the word means divine. I was just in Rome and I, it was crazy. I went to the forum and there's like, you know, diva written everywhere for like, you know, this or that empress who was deified. So it literally means goddess. But it became, it's sort of like next reemergence was with female opera singers in the 19th century. And women, of course, you know, pretty much from ancient Rome <laughs> on through the Industrial Revolution, not a lot's going on for them historically. <laughs> but yeah, then these like powerful female opera singers emerged and they're known as divas. And it it's not just a term of pure power. I mean, there is a lot of sort of like bloody, bloody sacrifice that comes along with it. And it's really interesting. Uh, really the place to look for this for me at least was was opera and opera history and there is an amazing article by James Davis or Davies I should look up his name because he is a faculty member here at Berkeley (laughs) 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 but he wrote a great article about um, the castrati who were um, male opera singers in the 18th century who were castrated um, as young boys so that they would keep their high soprano voice and they were the first true stars of opera they were huge in the 17th century and 18th century but then there came a shift with the Victorian era and the sort of 
rigidification of sex and gender roles that happened during that time. And as manliness and womanliness took on these really rigid, sort of strict ideas that I think we still have with us today, the castrati, there was nowhere in the like European imagination for the castrati. They, they just became monstrous and they'd been worshipped because they were able to be sort of conduits of this music. And music was like not, it was not so much like an earthly rooted in your body thing. It was kind of seen as this, you know, this mediator between like earthly and divine realms. And the castrati who were sort of not, I don't want to say sexless, because in so many ways, being castrated brought so much sort of sexuality to the fore in people's imaginations about them. But the idea that the castrati, you know, the castrati and like earthly procreation are like separate, the castrati were like these like clear vessels for this, this music that could pass through them and, you know, bring about this sort of like divine experience for the audience. They were they were like high priests, you know, in many ways. And then then, you know, we get this sort of like we get the 19th century coming on and adoration musically shifted to these women. And with the shift, the sort of idea of music became or at least voice became deeply embodied. Women were called diva because they were these forces of nature, right? All of a sudden, castrati were like so far from nature. They were unnatural in quotations um, in many ways. And the divas are seen as, you know, basically like Mother Earth spouting forth, you know, hurricanes, volcanoes, and waterfalls of, of sound. And so woman becomes, the idea of woman is very much like rooted in ideas of the body and imprisoned in ideas of, of the body. And so this access to the divine becomes something that, well, it always was, even with the castrati, one must suffer for, um, one must sacrifice for. And this sort of concurrent with the rise of the diva came the rise of knowledge about their personal lives. They were written about in the gossip columns, um, sort of the more you knew about a diva's personal life or sorrow, the more powerful or important the performance. And many of these women, you know, uh, tales grew up around them, about them, some people, you know, dying on stage from, from singing too long or, you know, giving up love for their art. I mean, this became really central to the diva myth. So you had the idea is you had to give up something. It's it's a. It's a double-edged sword because as a diva, on one hand, you are so much a part of nature that you are sublime, right? You know, in the sort of like Schopenhauerian sense of the word, <laughs> you're just like a, you're, a, you know, a force of nature um, that's both terrifying and beautiful. On the other hand, you sort of had to give up your natural, in quotation marks, life as a woman to, to serve your art. Often, you know, marriage has failed children were lost that sort of thing and everyone knew about it I mean this is very like important that this is like public knowledge and it contributes to people's understanding of an interaction with with the diva so did the songs actually have to be sad or just just sort of this image of suffering around them I think it really depends so I'm trying to separate individuals, you know, saying so-and-so is a diva from the idea of diva as an attitude toward performance. So I'll just keep using Judy Garland because like, hey, let's be consistent. <laughs> um, I think there are, are certainly roles in which she is not, um, you know, uh, enacting diva-ness, right? Like there are musicals from the late 30s and early 40s where Judy's just in a bit Busby Berkeley movie and like tap dancing, you know, maybe like 
wearing some minstrel makeup and being like terribly, you know, offensive or, you know, just doing anything that a late 30s, early 1940s musical star would do and happily dancing her way through a happy ending. Then there are other roles, movies, individual songs, individual performances where she's definitely an acting, you know, diva, which is, you know, certain songs took on a very personal resonance. Over the Rainbow is one. I would say even even if it wasn't maybe part of the experience of watching her sing Over the Rainbow in the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz, when it came out in 1939, when we look back at it today, sort of knowing a little bit about Judy Garland, as most people do, knowing that she is someone who had a pretty hard life and a lot of very public sadness, I would say that 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 becomes a diva performance. It becomes like really loaded with knowledge of suffering. And, you know, it's sort of like swathed in pathos now. (laughs) So yeah, I would, diva is really, I think, like an attitude towards performance in in terms of specific performances that can be as big as, as small as a song or as big as an entire film or opera or play. And you might have mentioned this already, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating, but does a diva in this context have to sing? I mean, I know we talked about the other context of of diva, but does this kind of diva have to sing? I'm so glad you asked. Um, No. (laughs) I just spent the summer in Italy studying an Italian silent film genre known as the diva films. And these were women who... Uh, So it's a silent film, so no one's singing. And they were uh, popular, these films, from about 1914 to 1918 or so. And they're characterized by women just being sort of... swooning, gesturing very grandly, suffering very, very grandly and sort of picturesquely with using their entire bodies to express themselves or express the inexpressible often. And these these stories are very like psychologically unmotivated. Oftentimes it's true, you know, they're based around, they're, they're often typical melodramas based around, um, you know, illicit love affairs or uh, because it's Italy, like uh, lost children are a big thing or like a son that they're looking to find. But they're often overcome for no specific reason. Like they'll look outside a window and just have to like, like swoon and sort of languidly throw themselves onto the couch. There's my favorite scene is in this film where a woman goes to the opera and seems to be very moved by the music. And then she rides home in her carriage and she's carrying a bouquet of flowers and she just eats them. Like for no reason. She just consumes the flowers. <laughs> so that's the that's a silent diva film. So I would say it's it's characterized by this like sort of very grand expressiveness. Sort of expressing nothing very specific. Just a general sort of like suffering and and like largeness so did you have to go to italy or you know are there is there is that the only way to see the films or was there a secondary purpose there? <laughs> so okay weirdly this is a very strange thing about archives i actually did have to go to italy if i was going to study these films in the united states there's only one of these uh released on dvd one diva film out of like you know hundreds of films that were made like this there are a couple maybe two or three that you can get on regularly released DVD in Europe. 
And the rest, you just have to go to the archives. And it's kind of silly because, well, I at least had these grand dreams of like, you know, sitting in the dark and having them run old films, you know, on celluloid for me. That is not what happens. (laughs) You get a stack of DVDs because like most people have digitized most of what's in their archives by now. And you sit in a study carol all day and you watch these DVDs. But no, you cannot watch these DVDs anywhere else in the world. You have to like go to Rome or Bologna and sit there in their specific study carol and watch their DVDs in their archive. So I had, yeah, I had to, I had to go to Italy to watch DVDs. Yeah, there, there are worse things. There are worse things. Worse study sites. <laughs> and, and so how do you take notes on this or what's your method for actually studying these films? It was so old school. I sat there with my notebook and I often paused frames and drew them <laughs> because um, there's no way, I suppose I could have photographed them, but I'm not that high tech. <laughs> so yeah, there's no way. They don't let you take the DVDs home. So you just have to take a bunch of notes, um, hope you're getting your Italian right, <laughs> and do a lot of pausing. And I, so like on average, a film that would last an hour and 15 minutes if you just screened it all the way through with all my pausing and everything would probably take me like two and a half hours. It takes about twice the time. So it was arduous. <laughs> yeah. That old school method, though, seems good, you know, considering the subject matter and, and when it came out. It's appropriate. That's right. It's a very analog process. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. And uh, my name is Tesla Munson. This is The Graduates. Today I'm joined by film and media expert Dolores McElroy studying the diva and, and everything that means, uh, mostly from the first half of the 20th century. And uh, all sorts. Of, so American divas, Italian divas. Do you have any other geographical divas? Um, I would really love to study, but have not yet, South American and Central American cinema, specifically Mexico in the 40s and 50s, because those ladies are outrageous. And I will love them, but I I don't know enough about them yet. So that's next on the list. Um, Really what I found is that most countries, with the exception of America, um, with a strong Catholic background, produce, produce the divas. So, yeah, I've got some Italian divas going on. A lot of the scholarship around opera in the 19th century is actually French, or not so much the scholarship as the firsthand material. Because although we we often think of opera as very Italian, really where diva was coined was in Paris in the sort of 1820s, the sort of usage of diva that we understand today. So, yeah, if I had to expand this project, I would definitely expand to Central and South America and see what's going on there. So I couldn't, you know, I can't do this interview without asking what everyone asks, which is who are the divas of today? You know, we we definitely have the pop culture and the celebrity knowledge of their suffering. So are there divas today then as well? Or like camp, is it, is it gone? <laughs> no, I think there are definitely divas today. And it's something that will probably be with us maybe in sort of uh, morphing forms <laughs> for quite some time. It's funny for me, Madonna is a, a figure that sort of marks off a change. Madonna's a shift. Madonna to me is like the Andy Warhol of divas. It's like there there are many interesting things about her, but at least for me, I, I find her deeply annoying because she seems to be just like a pastiche of things that came before. I don't see her as it, it's more she she assembles sort of the trappings of diva around herself. But to this may be me being a traditionalist. 
But I think that if you sort of like put Madonna on a stage or in a film and just had her, you know, like do something on her own without like 300 dancers and a video that like that wouldn't be very moving. I don't think it would she could like really enact the diva ritual of sort of like suffering and sort of walking us through that very like cathartic um, ritual. I don't think that Madonna could really produce this on her own nor do I think she really produces it in any of her work that I can think of but she does mark a shift where I think people just make themselves you know put on certain outfits you know after her comes Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and whatever and those people are different and we could talk about them you know each individually but I think that those people have been labeled diva and I don't think that's necessarily true being a big star doesn't make you a diva a diva sort of serves a purpose and it is this sort of like ritual of suffering and she also has to be fabulous in some way either you know if that's fabulously talented or um sort of looking outrageous I mean there there is something divas aren't the girl next door (laughs) like they really aren't (laughs) so there are people who I think like have potential like Lady Gaga I think is someone who maybe down the line could kind of serve this purpose maybe she already does although it's kind of hard to tell her publicity is so there's like such an onslaught of it <laughs> like I kind of don't know like what it what are the narratives of her life and her songs but maybe her fans know this more and I think for her fans like she does have a lot of meaning like this like she sort of performs this ritual of sort of walking them through sad or painful things and sort of coming out triumphantly or seemingly. Beyonce is always the big question. For me, Beyonce is not a diva. Maybe, you know, maybe she'll divorce Jay-Z and go through a terrible time and sort of like an Ike and Tina-esque period and then come out with her what's love got to do with it moment. And then maybe for me, she'll be a diva. But right now, Beyonce is so like smooth, so uncontroversial. Like she's just, she's a very sexy lady who can dance, you know, but to me, that does not a diva make. And, you know, just calling yourself fierce all the time doesn't actually make you fierce. I just don't feel like there's a lot of depth there and certainly not in her performances. And in interviews, I mean, she's so choreographed and, you know, coached to the nth degree. I've never I've never seen a real moment from Beyonce in my life. And I think those sort of like flaws and those sort of like raw chokes vocally and in publicity and otherwise are really what makes a diva. I mean, you've got to be unique. There's got to be something sort of ugly or painful that shows through but also makes you you, you know, and this is often very like tied to your specific artistry like Billie Holiday would be a great example, like a really unique sort of cracked voice, you know, that like embodies a lot of lived pain and is like no one else's. And yeah, so I definitely want to give the artists of today a chance. (laughs) But like people on Top 40 Radio that I can think of, uh, there are few and far between. (laughs) So why why did they let you get a degree in this? Like, why should we care? Is it just because, you know, we have People Magazine on all the shelves? Or, you know, what is the significance of this and the the weight? Well, that is such a good question. (laughs) I often don't know myself, and I find it kind of amazing that I'm getting a degree in this, to be honest. So for me, it's pure selfish joy and getting to be around things I love. But for people in the world, I really think I know art matters to people. I worked in opera for years before I came to school. And music saves people's lives. It's quite clear to me. Like, I don't even 
have to think about that twice. There are so many stories of people who, you know, music or film or performance or theater is is something that people hang on to and that resonates with them, usually at terrible periods during their young lives, to let them know that they're not alone. And divas have a big role in this a lot of the time. And we all need art to understand life. I really believe that. I think it's a big part of being human. Divas are a big part of our artistic landscape, especially our popular artistic landscape. So there's a lot of meaning wrapped up in them that we haven't untangled yet. They're just starting to get treated seriously on a scholarly level. And they should be because people really care. (laughs) People camp out for those tickets. You know, that's the music they put on when they break up with their significant other. These people have a lot of meaning in our lives, and it's, it's worth understanding because it's worth understanding kind of what life is about. <laughs> and so, yeah. So you mentioned the opera. I know you work at the San Francisco Opera. What what sort of musical and film activities would you recommend for the general public who are interested in the same things as you? Bayer is amazing for this. Yeah, San Francisco Opera is the second largest opera company in North or South America, and you should go check it out if you can. The last I checked, rush tickets were either 10 or 15 bucks. That's how I've used to go to the opera and stand in the back. It's definitely worth it. Also, amazing theater here in the Bay Area. In terms of musical theater, in San Francisco, there's a company called 42nd Street Moon, and they do sort of underperformed works of the 20th century musical theater, and they're great. And Berkeley Playhouse here in Berkeley, they're on College Avenue, and they do a great sort of family musical theater program, but like in a good way. (laughs) Like Pixar is their model, I've heard them say. So they have Mary Poppins coming up, which I'm actually really excited about. Yeah, so Berkeley Playhouse, and I would frequent drag shows. Um, I really enjoyed theme nights at the Stud in San Francisco, and our very own White Horse Inn here in Berkeley, definitely. So just check out the drag performers because they love divas more than anyone. (laughs) So and what about the students who have now listened to you talk about doing these amazing things and getting to go to Italy and just like watching movies and like listening to music all the time? So how how do students get this gig? All I can say is just whatever you love to do, just relentlessly pursue it (laughs) and something will happen. You'll get a job doing it somehow. You know, not everyone loves divas. (laughs) For me, what motivates me in life is sharing my, my love and passion for things with people and hearing about theirs. So, you know, I would like to teach so that I can do that for the rest of my life. But basically, yeah, whatever you love, just keep doing it. There's a place for you. You know, if you can get a show at Calyx or... Thank you. Yeah, Calyx. Right. You know, and just keep keep at it and just be around it. And even if it doesn't pay right away, always keep your foot in the door and, you know, just be involved in the things you love. It's simplistic advice, but... I have no other. <laughs> no, that's great advice. Uh, I, I think we're coming about to the end of our time here. Dolores, do you have any last words for the audience? You know, I do. I would just like to say about my department, film and media, it's incredible. I can't believe I get to be here and study with the people I get to study with. My professors, Linda Williams and Marianne Doan and Marianne Smart in music. These are people I read, you know, long before I came to Berkeley. And we're so blessed on this campus. It's it's an embarrassment of riches. And I, yeah, I'm just really, really grateful to be here. It's kind, kind of a dream come true. So yeah, no, definitely. So go Berkeley, go Calyx, go Divas. We got all these things to celebrate here. Thank you so much, Dolores. 
if you're just tuning in, this is it. This is over. The the graduates is done for today, but we'll be back. That's right. This is CalX 90.7 FM, KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I've been joined by diva expert, but no diva herself, Dolores McElroy in the Department of Film and Media here at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of The Graduates two weeks from today. That's every other Tuesday at 9 a.m. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX, Berkeley.